0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today decided to pursue a subject that has divided Americans for decades, the Vietnam War. David Prentice is author of Unwilling to Quit, The Long Unwinding of American Involvement in Vietnam, published by University Press of Kentucky. David looks at the Nixon administration's Vietnamization policy by drawing on newly declassified documents and international archives, and he provides domestic and foreign contexts for America's withdrawal from the conflict. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And David, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Why did you decide to focus on Vietnam? We, we obviously have had so many wars over the centuries here. What was it about the Vietnam War particularly that it I don't know if the right word is appealed to you, but certainly piqued your interest.
1: But it's a bit of a curious backstory. I was actually a graduate student in chemistry and chemical biology at Cornell University. And they just happened to have located Fred Logaval and Keith Taylor's Vietnam War class in the chemistry building at the same time I was there. And I wandered in. One morning for the class around about the sixty-eight Tet Offensive and was immediately hooked by the story, diplomatic history, doing diplomatic history as a field as well. And I just fell in love with the subject and the hard questions and decisions that Vietnam is setting, Vietnam invites. And so I switched out of chemistry into history and immediately just took to answering questions about how, when and why America chose to end its war
0: in Vietnam. Well, the book focuses on Nixon, but really it had its genesis in Eisenhower first, then Kennedy. The Escalation came out in Lyndon Johnson's regime, and I think that's where the protests started and a lot of opposition. And then it went to Nixon, who promised he had a peace plan, and it went on again, even longer. As you mentioned, the long unwinding road here. Sounds like a Beatles song. But uh, (laughs) were you surprised about Anything you found was there? I'm going to ask it from a non-historian point of view. If you lived during that era, there was plenty of governmental disinformation and misinformation about the war, including such things as body counts. And a lot of that had to do with what Halberstam used to call the best and the brightest. And some of these people were, I don't know whether they were delusional or egotistical or what the issue was with all of them, but nobody seemed to have a clear view of what the reality was during that time. I don't want to get too far afield, but I'd like to cover that part of it first, and then we can get into the, into the Nixon administration and their approach. So I'll, I'll start off with that.
1: Certainly, I think as historians have started really digging into declassified material, we also benefit from presidential tapes, both Kennedy, Johnson, as well as Nixon. Usually we think of the presidential tapes in terms of just Nixon, but other presidents had kept tapes and recordings as well. And surveying all of this new information, one of the things that stands out to me is the doubts presidents and other leaders had about Vietnam as they were escalating that conflict and as they were winding down that conflict. There's not the clear optimism that they're projecting to the public often. You know, you're speaking of the best and the broadest. There's also, by the start of the Tet Offensive, a pretty significant presidential credibility gap that widens over time, Mm -hmm. both in the Johnson era as well as the Nixon era. And just having these doubts in many ways muddies the water on what presidents knew or what they thought they knew and what the public was being told. But the further the war continued and this gap widened, it made it even more difficult for American presidents to find a way out of Vietnam that could secure the aims they sought, as well as keeping general support at home.
0: Did you get any insight into that dichotomy between what the public was being told and the private doubts of these politicians and how it affected their psyche? In this sense that if you are unsure, why are you selling this war to the general public when you realize it's going to result in the deaths of many Americans? It's not this is not to obviously disrespect those who served in Vietnam and died or were maimed or have other issues. They served their country. But I'm talking about the leadership. If you had internal doubt, how did that not affect you in terms of saying, how did not any of those best and brightest say, you know what, maybe we need to de-escalate, maybe we need to our rationale doesn't make sense here. Why can't let's get away from this and focus our energies and time and resources in other areas?
1: So in thinking about best and the broadest, the private doubts that presidents, a lot of officials increasingly had about the war and its ultimate outcome, on the one hand, there are issues of American credibility. Nixon believes that securing detente and an era of rising isolationism, that all of these things together dictate that America pull out some semblance of peace with honor in Vietnam. The second thing I would add to that, though, is that it's a contingent moment, especially in 68 and 69 and early 1970. There's a chapter in the book which I dubbed the New Optimist, which is a contemporary phrase that emerges around the early 1970s to describe official pronouncements about the war. And indeed, as the Second Republic of Vietnam begins to get some military strength back after the offensive some level of political stability and legitimacy. There is, in addition to the doubts, which are still there within the official memos and debates within the Nixon administration, there are also those that are saying, you know what, maybe the war has turned a corner. And I think this is where adding Vietnamese sources and archives from the North as well as the South is important. That gives a sense of, yes, there is this contingent moment but there are also structural forces and factors working against the Republic of Vietnam and perhaps also in the North Vietnamese favor that Nixon is choosing to ignore and at least bury and keep out of high-level conversations and certainly public pronouncements.
0: During that time when there were sufficient intellectual opposition, there was sufficient intellectual opposition to the Vietnam War on college campuses, not just from students, but professors and historians, and et cetera. Some professors who are historians, but the point is that there were there there, there was a it wasn't just an emotional response in opposition to the Vietnam War. There was there were reasoned arguments about why are we uh, questions why are we there. The government response at the time seemed to be rather than listening to any of these people, even though you said earlier that government leaders had private doubts was to take, take, in essence, an offensive against those people in terms of spying and intimidation, et cetera, to dissent. So I I just have trouble reconciling that in my head. Did you have trouble with that when you did your research?
1: So on the one hand, intellectual dissent, especially legitimate dissent, is present at the start of the war, the Americanization. And you're right, it's it's building throughout time. I think one of the things that amazed me as I'm looking at the presidential record, especially in the Nixon administration, is how seriously they take that dissent, not necessarily the arguments behind it, but certainly the power of this growing grassroots movement to shape opinion in Congress, shape opinion on campuses, to shape opinion in living rooms. And you see this particularly borne out in the October 1969 moratorium, one of the largest anti-war protest in history. And all of this powerfully limits, Nixon agrees, his options. He believes that to over-escalate the war or to pursue the sort of bombing campaigns that he would like to embrace in 1969, that that would only make the anti-war movement much more powerful, thereby undermining the support in Congress he needs to get Vietnamization the money that it will depend upon to survive and sort of mobilize, in real terms, the Vietnamese economy and its military. But as far as grappling with the anti-war arguments, I don't see much in the way of that in terms
0: of the record. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating period of time. And when you went and researched both, not just American archives, but you mentioned earlier Vietnamese archives, both South and North, what was the most surprising thing or things you found out that you didn't know you might have suspected or you might not have suspected, but all of a sudden here's this document or here's this recording that reveals something to you that you never realized was there?
1: One of the surprising things, and perhaps it should not have been surprising as I found it, was how quickly and how enthusiastically the South Vietnamese government embraced Vietnamization Even going back to 1968 and the Lyndon johnson administration, the South Vietnamese state is overwhelmingly supportive of something like Vietnamization. As they look at the American domestic front, they believe that the only way to continue to get the American aid and support they need is for the U.S. to start withdrawing its troops. Now they want a slow and steady withdrawal program, but they still believe that this is fundamental and perhaps the only thing they can be doing that will get them the ongoing U.S. air support or the ongoing U.S. economic support they need to fight the North Vietnamese, deal with the National Liberation Front, and ultimately survive. In many ways, it's a long shot, but by the end of 1968, early 69, they see it as the only path forward, and they embrace Vietnamization far in advance of Richard
0: Nixon. Now, that is surprising. I didn't realize that. Your your book again is called "Unwilling to Quit: The Long Unwinding of American Involvement in Vietnam." Why was there an unwillingness to quit? And is that just the hubris of the American government at that time, or the administration? And I don't think it was just Nixon. I mean, everyone wants to just pile on Nixon, but but frankly, it was Johnson that escalated the war. And then when he realized he couldn't run for re-election, he he didn't, and, and it fell to Nixon. So N- Nixon may have. I guess, made major decisions that didn't help matters, but it still comes down to not just one administration. Again, it started under Eisenhower, was there under Kennedy, escalated under Johnson, and then continued and eventually ended under Nixon.
1: No, I think there's something to be said about seeing it in this wider context from Kennedy through Nixon, if not even Ford as well. And the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, it seems to me that they're trying to postpone making any hard, real decisions about Vietnam. And they're trying to avoid a larger American commitment, but in trying to avoid that commitment, they sort of of slowly sleepwalk into it. Mm -hmm. And not just, you know, you're talking about not just the Nixon administration, and I think that's quite right. By 1969, public opinion polls pollsters and the like are all indicating to the White House and others that Americans, by and large, are opposed to a precipitate U.S. withdrawal. They're opposed to allowing or taking any action that would cause the Republic of Vietnam to collapse or to feel abandoned by the United States. And so the title of the book, Unwilling to Quit, is actually comes out of a Time magazine article that was published in the wake of the moratorium Protests. And the full title of it was Americans on the War, Divided, Blum, Unwilling to Quit. So that on one hand, you've got Nixon's concerns about credibility, about detente, about America's role in the world as the 1960s winds up. But he also is looking at polling the silent majority, which he'll speak to on November 3rd, 1969, that is also disinclined to quickly leave Vietnam and allow South Vietnam to collapse. And so what comes out of this political diplomatic process and context is a slower withdrawal schedule than we might otherwise expected if we're just looking at this growing anti-war movement in the late 1960s.
0: How much of an impact did the elimination of the draft have on the continuation of the Vietnam War? Because a lot of the protests at the time were led by, for example, kids of college age, I'll say young adults of college age, who were subject to the draft. Uh, You had the working class young men who were drafted, and you had those in college who could get a deferment. A lot of it had to do with personal danger in the sense of being drafted against your will because of the draft, and then the draft was eliminated. I don't know that it muted the opposition to the war, but it certainly helped take some of the tension out of it, if that's a way of saying it.
1: No, I think that is a fair way of saying it. I think that's how architects of the all-volunteer force and then the draft lottery before that saw it, that people like Melvin Laird, Secretary of Defense, believed that the draft was one of these issues that could be both a moral issue, and ethical issue, and together it quickens the intensity of the anti-war debate. As you indicated, for college students, people about to graduate from college, then face the prospect of the draft, it made the anti-war movement a very real necessity for many of them. And so for Laird and Nixon then, moving to an all-volunteer force was perhaps a way of taking the tempo down on the anti-war movement, removing the draft as an issue, trying to make it more fair, through the lottery system, and then eventually through an all-volunteer force. And in some ways, yes, take the wind out of the sails of the anti-war movement and buy the Nixon administration a little bit more time at home.
0: From your perspective, and this is a non-academic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and that is, you know, you have heroes and you have villains. Based on your research and your writing of this book, again, it's called Unwilling to Quit the Long Unwinding of American Involvement in Vietnam. Was there a hero or two? Was there, from your perspective, again, as an academic researching this, was there a villain or two that you came across that you didn't realize were either heroes or villains? And I I know that's an emotionally laden word, hero and villain, two words, but in the context of your research and writing of the book, were there a couple of people there that you said, oh, Okay, this guy deserves a, some plaudits, and here's a couple of people that deserve some condemnation.
1: No, no. The way I deal with history, the way I approach history, is I try to avoid sort of villainizing one person or lauding other people as, as heroes. If anything, I think throughout the book there are moments where I'll say, you know, this or that policy might have been good or well-intended, and I try to give every individual a fair take. And I usually assess them in their own terms. So Nixon's being assessed by what were Nixon's goals? What was he trying to achieve? Did he achieve that? And it's same for the North Vietnamese leaders, as well as those in the South of evaluating them on their own terms, while at times also now that we have this larger historical record, being able to evaluate those goals and statements against perhaps bits of information they chose to disregard or ignore and thus bring a bigger picture. But as far as heroes and villains, not so much.
0: Sorry. That's okay. But from a historical perspective, how about this? We'll rephrase it, Your Honor, the question. And that (laughs) is, uh, who was, aside from Nixon and possibly Kissinger, who was the most pivotal figure in changing American policy towards Vietnam?
1: I think without question, it has to be Mel Laird, Mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense. And the reasons why I settled on him is it began, the book project began with the questions, well, how, why, and when did America choose to get out of Vietnam? And as I've surveyed the Kissinger record, Nixon's record, and the thought process and strategies Nixon came into the White House with, you don't see Vietnamization, you don't see troop withdrawal factoring hardly anywhere at all beyond perhaps an occasional token withdrawal from time to time. Lyndon Johnson left his successor no blueprint, no promise of U.S. troop withdrawal, which meant Nixon had relative freedom, we remove and sort of ignore the domestic context, but he had relative freedom to pursue whatever path he wanted Vietnam. And so I have to ask myself, okay, where did U.S. troop withdrawal come from? What was the impetus behind that? And once I began digging into the historical record, Melvin Laird loomed as the only real advocate of U.S. troop withdrawals. And as an individual, he often chose to ignore presidential orders. If he thought the president was going to do something too reckless in Vietnam or in Korea or elsewhere, Could just flatly ignore the order now i got to know melvin laird just a little bit toward the end of his life he found my phone number when i was starting the project and would call me randomly from time to time and share bits and pieces that he thought i should know and you know it was always clear that he never meant to directly defy presidential order but that the policies he was embracing and the things he was choosing to ignore he argued were always in the president's best interest and for a political operator like Laird that almost had U.S. elections and domestic politics in mind. But nevertheless, it's his voice and his role that I think got the troop withdrawal started at a date and time and pace far faster than the military, Kissinger or Nixon would have tolerated.
0: In your research, was a, I know that it's publicly known that McNamara had serious misgivings after he left public office. Were there any other key figures that had some introspection at some point about their role in the Vietnam conflict?
1: I think quite a few did. The original book project began or had begun in 1967, so it followed the Johnson administration, unwilling to quit the second half of that total book project. So hopefully one day soon there'll be a second book on Lyndon Johnson and his decisions before Nixon. Uh, But his second Secretary of Defense, Clark Clifford, was in many ways influenced by Robert McNamara and his doubts and introspection. So that by the time Clifford's leaving office in 68 or early 69, he himself is having a lot of these same doubts. Melvin Laird always struck me as too confident or perhaps unwilling to concede that Vietnamization had problems or flaws. But I believe for him, the overriding factor was getting America out of Vietnam as quickly and as honorably as possible while allowing that a quick and honorable end might be impossible. But regardless, the U.S., for matters of national interest and domestic politics, had to get out.
0: When you look at the overall Arc of history, it seems to me it's ironic that we were being sold the old dominoes falling issue during the Vietnam War, that if we didn't save Vietnam, other countries would fall. And yet now we go into 2023, and Vietnam is, if not an ally, certainly working with us against China in a sense. Are you surprised about that and whether there was real justification for the domino theory?
1: Given Vietnam's complicated relationship with China and some of its other allies and its ability to always act almost independently throughout the Vietnamese War. Now, it's dependent upon China and the Soviet Union for arms, for aid, for advisors, but it manages that relationship with a spirit of independence that serves North Vietnam's aims in that conflict. As for the domino theory, it gets rather complicated. There's a lot of counterfactuals involved. What would have happened had the U.S. not intervened in Vietnam? Not. From my perspective, though, and I, I take just a very narrow glance at it in the context of the book, is how does America's allies feel about U.S. troop patrol from Vietnam? It's clear in 1969 that America is choosing to slowly extricate itself from Vietnam without a clear victory. Now, for America's allies, the domino theory is less and less and less of a concern. 69 through, say, the opening of China, the opening to China in 71 and 72. Nevertheless, there are U.S. allies who communicate to Nixon that they still feel the domino theory is important and that they still feel that America's stand in Vietnam is the right stand? Australia in particular, which has troops on the ground in Vietnam alongside the Americans is viewing Vietnamization in the context of its own security concerns. What does Vietnamization say about America's commitment to the ANZUS pact? What does it say about America's commitment to NATO? And so I should add to complicate this narrative somewhat. The late 60s and early 70s is also a period of rising isolationism within the United States. And it's something that in looking at foreign archives, U.S. allies are concerned about.
0: Did you still come across some archives that are classified or is everything unclassified at this point? From your perspective as a researcher and writer of this book, did you come across things that you just couldn't get access to?
1: Yeah, certainly. There are lots and lots and lots of boxes, both in U.S. presidential archives, but also abroad, that are still classified. And you fill out Freedom of Information request, hope that eventually you might get some documents. But my generation's benefited from a large effort to declassify a lot of the Nixon years. And so we know a lot more now than we did 20 years ago, but there's probably a lot still left to be declassified In terms of the Vietnamese papers that I went through in South Vietnamese archives, what would have been the South Vietnamese papers, it was hit or miss on what I could get access to. They gave me quite a bit to go through, certainly more than I expected. But there was probably still a lot of other government of Vietnam papers and documents that I did not yet have access to.
0: What's the biggest takeaway that you would like to share with us from the book that you've written and what readers will be most surprised about.
1: One of the things for me that was both the most rewarding part of the book, but also the most difficult, was focusing on this human element with all of the different groups, from the anti-war protesters to the North Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese, White House, and just the hard decisions all of these sides are grappling with. It takes a very real toll on the policymakers on all sides of the conflict. And so there's always throughout the book this human element of missed opportunities, perhaps, or things they didn't know or things they should have thought more about. But beyond that, there's just the weight of trying to make difficult decisions, try to end an inconclusive war, on the part of the United States, or win what had already been a very long and bloody war between the Vietnamese.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been David Prentice. He's author of Unwilling to Quit, the long unwinding of American involvement in Vietnam. It's published by University Press of Kentucky. And David, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.